as well. So <clears throat> our speaker this morning is Pastor Cameron DeVazier. Some of you might know who he is. Others of you may say, I don't know who that is. And so I just want to give you a, a brief background here. Uh, he graduated from Southern back in 2000 in a BA with religious education. 2010, he got his master's there at Southern uh, in religion and the emphasis on evangelism and his heart is certainly there. Uh, he's pastored many places. He was the pastor and Bible teacher in Jim State Academy in Idaho. He pastored in Florida for many years. I think he's been in Michigan, perhaps the longest pastoring. Uh, now he's the personal ministry and Sabbath school director for the Michigan Conference. Uh, and so some of you are aware of the talking points that he and Mark Howard do together. Uh, that's available as a, a resource. I've appreciated that on many occasions. I know others in this church do as well. And I also wear the hat of Adult Sabbath School for the Carolina Conference. And so that brings us and, and connects us from time to time. Uh, this week, the North American Division is having their ministry convention in Greensboro, North Carolina. It can be anywhere in the country and has been, but they've chosen Greensboro. And so on their way, they've decided to come to through our house as a pit stop. And I thought, what a great opportunity to have him come and present. Uh, Pastor DeVazier has presented as the keynote speaker at GYC some years ago. He has presented for amazing discoveries on many occasions. He's actually going to be one of the main speakers for our uh, camp meeting here in Carolina, and I'm excited about that. Uh, our conference president has invited him to come serve here in Carolina m on many occasions, uh, <clears throat> so no pressure there. And others have asked... Uh, a DeVazier. I remember, in fact, David Johnson said, I remember taking a class from a DeVazier at Fletcher Academy. Uh, and Dr. Bernard is his father. And sure enough, that was Dave Johnson's, I believe, science teacher. Uh, maybe some of you others remember that as well. Uh, unfortunately, Dave said, I don't remember anything about science. <laughs> but that's all right. I'm sure he was a great teacher. Uh, but he is here with his wife, Emily, who is my wife, Elizabeth's older sister. And they have three beautiful children. Henry is 12, I believe. Edward is 10. And Molly is 7. And so we've been anticipating their arrival for some time. We're glad y'all are here. Welcome. And we look forward to what you have to share with us this morning. Thank you for that beautiful piece of music. And thank you for your hospitality and those kind words, Brother David and Hendersonville Church family. Over the years, we've had the opportunity to visit here with some occasion, some frequency, and every single time, it is a rich blessing for our family. So as a regular visitor to your church, I want to thank you for your ministry to us. It is wonderful to be here. We had a wonderful Sabbath school experience this morning, wonderful worship experience thus far. We praise the Lord for the hospitality, the generosity, the kindness, the sweetness, and Specifically, I want to thank you for your musical interest and your capacity and for, for so, so richly blessing. You don't understand if you don't... <laughs> we go to a, a small, sweet, rural church that does not have the angel choir that you have assembled here every Sabbath morning. If you would be so kind as to simply push record and make an album of congregational hymns from the Hendersonville Seventh-day Adventist Church, not to disseminate to the whole world, but just to give to our family. I would tremendously appreciate that. 
It's just a joy to be in the house of God. No matter how many believers are assembled, if two or three are gathered, he's here with us. Amen? And today I want to share with you uh, some thoughts from God's Word, a simple Bible study really, but by God's grace we'll find some lessons for each one of us to apply in our lives and put to use for His glory. But before we do anything as a study of God's Word, let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the Sabbath day. I thank you in your wisdom for ordaining it, setting it apart from the very beginning of the world for this very purpose, to come apart from every other duty, to rest in Jesus, to fellowship with the body of Christ and to be of service for Him. And Lord, now as we turn our attention to a study of Your Word, we would ask that You would send the Holy Spirit in a very special way. Not just in the room, generally, but specifically to each mind and heart to sharpen our thinking and to make us receptive to what You have for us today. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I would invite you to take out your Bibles and go to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to make chapter 8 our home base for our Bible study today. Our message is entitled, The Demoniacs. The Demoniacs. Matthew chapter 8. And as you're turning there, of course we would remind that in context, Matthew chapter 8 comes right after Matthew chapter 7, which follows 6 and 5 before that. For those of you who know, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus stands up, and one of the few sermons he gives, oftentimes his deepest teaching is done in a one-on-one, -on -one personal ministry type of thing, which as an aside, I would tell you, Jesus expects every one of us to have one-on-one, -on -one personal ministry types of things and opportunities in our lives, and he modeled that in his own life, but on this occasion... He gives this Sermon on the Mount. He elucidates all these great principles of the kingdom of God. And at the conclusion of this, you can see in Matthew chapter 7, just before chapter 8, at the very end there, it says in chapter 7, verse 28, And so it was, when Jesus had ended these things, that the people were astonished at his teaching. For, verse 29, he taught them as one having, what? Authority. Now, it could have ended there, but it says, and not as the scribes. So apparently people were getting religious teaching, but it was, well, it could be seen this way, and I'm not sure about this, and I, truth for you, and truth for you, and I have this, or one guy says, Jesus said, you've heard it said, but I say. And he laid down truth, principles of the kingdom, and people were astonished. For he spoke as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now it's in that context, of course, that we go right into Matthew chapter 8, verse 1, where it says, When he had come down from the mountain. So clearly he's just articulated the principles of God's kingdom. He's laid out the theory. And now he literally steps down from the mountain to put into practice that what he just preached. When he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. So you get the picture that Jesus has everyone's attention. He outlined the great principles of God's kingdoms, kingdom. And as he steps in to put it into practice, the great multitudes follow him. It's almost like a stone rolling down the mountain. It's picking up momentum as it comes. He's 
articulated the ideal, and now he's going to show what it looks like in practice. And as you go through the chapter of Matthew chapter 8, you will notice, or at least I noticed when I was studying this a while back, there are 34 verses. Now, to be clear, I don't think there's anything mysterious or mystical or anything special about the numbers of the verses. They were added after the I just think it's interesting that of the 34 verses, the first 17, exactly the first half, Jesus comes down from that mountain with success after success after success. He is just like, like knocking over every obstacle that Satan tries to throw in his way. And he's just healing people. In fact, take a look at this. Very next verse, verse 2. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. He heals the leper. First thing off of coming down from the mountain. If you go down to verses 5 through 13, we see the story of Jesus healing the centurion's servant. Success after success. You go to verse 14. It says, Now when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with fever. So he touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she arose and served him. Verse 16. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. And he cast out the spirits with a word, and healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. So you put all of this together, five, six, seven, and now eight are one consecutive storyline of Jesus articulating the principles and then putting them into practice. And you would think that perhaps Satan would look at, listen to the sermon, see the results in the life of Christ, and realize he is a vanquished foe and he would step back Yield the field to Christ. Of course, that's not his way. He redoubles his efforts, and right here, at the halfway mark of Matthew chapter 8, he ratchets up the opposition. So now you're going to notice that Jesus encounters more and more difficulties. Now he's successful, but things heighten. For instance, in verse 18, when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Jesus essentially looks at the scenario now. I've preached the message. I've put it into practice. And now it's time for me to go to the next place. It's time to leave. He realizes that this crowd, which it was great to have at the first, would now become a hindrance to his ministry. We need to go to new territory. I've got another appointment to make it to. It's time to go. But just then, verse 19, a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now that to me sounds good. That's another success. He's got a follower. He's got a disciple here. But notice what Jesus responds to him. Verse 20. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
Christ discerns this lack of commitment and recognizes he's not willing to make the sacrifice and he essentially dissuades him from following him. It's like, you, you, you don't understand. I need to get going and I'm a homeless vagabond, a wanderer on the earth and you couldn't... No. Verse 21. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. As is to say, I'm willing to do that sacrifice, but I've got matters to attend to first, and they're pressing, they're urgent, they're timely. I can't go now. Well, just, just wait. Let me first do this, then we can go. And look at verse 22. Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. If it were anyone else who would say that was unchristlike, but wait a minute. <laughs> By definition, nothing Christ says could be unchristlike. Christ is seeing through these hindrances, these obstacles, these encumbrances to his intention to move on in ministry. In fact, watch what happens next. Verse 23. Now, when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Now remember verse 27. We're going to revisit it in just a few verses, but look at the question of his disciples then. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be? that even the winds and the sea obey him. So they're just still trying to wrap their finite minds around who this son of man truly is. And they've witnessed certain things, but this takes it up a notch, right? That he can even control the elements of nature and do it with calm confidence. Who is this? So we have a great multitude, alarms Jesus, and he has to leave. A scribe wants to follow Jesus, he discerns his lack of commitment. Another disciple wants to have him hold off and wait, but Jesus pointedly says, I must be on my way. And finally, Satan confronts Jesus with this tempest, this supernatural storm that, of course, Christ rolls up his sleeves and conquers as well. Which brings us to our main point this morning, our main section, which was read so well in our scripture reading, this final encounter in Matthew chapter 8, where Jesus has had success after success after success. Even these heightened ones, Jesus cuts through, he discerns the issues, keeps going, and calmly dispatches even with the wind and the waves. Which brings us to verse 28. When he had come to the other side, to the country of the Gergensenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs. And notice what is their purpose there. 
exceedingly fierce, so that, what's the purpose of those men being posted there? So that no one could pass that way. They were Satan's sentinels. They were guardians of the Gergensines, if you will. They were Satan's frontline soldiers to stop the progress, specifically, of Jesus and his disciples. Now, I think that's fascinating. Jesus comes down from the mountain, and he makes a stop there at the foot of the mountain, but he has an objective in mind, and he's on his way there. Satan sees his trajectory. He knows where he's aiming, and he keeps throwing this at him, and this at him to distract or discourage or dissuade or to d- divert his attention, or if possible, to completely drown him out of existence. And now he has front He's confronted, I should say, with these demon-possessed men who are specifically posted there so that no one could pass that way. Now, a brief aside. It says there met him two demon-possessed men. You can find the same account in the Gospel of Mark where it says a demon-possessed man. And some will look at such apparent contradictions to say, oh, clearly it's just stories and this guy told his version of it, that guy told his version of it, and it's it's really based in reality. It's really just kind of an old wives' tale or an urban legend or kind of a, a religious myth or that kind of... It's not... Let's be clear that you can witness the same thing and give an honest report that comes out two different ways. Depending on the emphasis you want to give to it, depending on what, trying, what lesson you're trying to extract and draw out from it. Commenting on this, I just want to share a thought from the introduction to the book, The Great Controversy. Sister White explains, in different age, written in different ages, she's talking about all of Scripture here, but it applies to what we're seeing here, but the apparent discrepancy between Matthew and Mark. Written in different ages, by men who differed widely in rank and occupation, and in mental and spiritual endowments, the books of the Bible present a wide contrast in style as well as a diversity in the nature of the subjects unfolded. Different forms of expression are employed by different writers. Often the same truth is more strikingly presented by one than by another. So they might take out one aspect of it and highlight that and emphasize it. It doesn't make them contradictory, it just makes them complementary. She goes on, and as several writers present a subject under varied aspects and relations, there may appear to the superficial, careless, or prejudiced reader to be discrepancy or contradiction, where the thoughtful, reverent student with clearer insight discerns the underlying harmony. Now, I don't know exactly what the case is here, but clearly there were more than one demon-possessed, two, as Matthew calls it. Mark highlights the interaction of one of them specifically, But there isn't a contradiction here, and we're going to see how these two accounts complement each other as we continue on. But again in verse 28, when he had come to the other side of the country of the Gergensees, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. So you have Jesus and disciples who've already endured, survived this threat of the storm, And they're astonished. By the way, the general public was astonished at his teaching at the end of chapter 7. Now his own disciples are astonished at his capacity and miracle-working power. 
Everybody's blown away. Like, Whoa, we didn't see this coming. Who is this man? He speaks with authority. He acts against nature. How is this possible? Who is this? And that was their, what was their question in verse 27? So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? Those were his disciples asking that question. Next verse, two demon-possessed men. Now go to verse 29. And suddenly they cried out. Time out. Who's the they in this context? The demon-possessed men, right? Suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Did you catch that? The general public listening to the Sermon on the Mount were astonished. Who is this? He's unlike the other teachers. His own disciples in the boat. Who can this be that even the wind and the waves obey him? But when he comes to the demons, is there any equivocation? Is there any questioning? Is there any wondering? Is there, hmm, this is interesting? No, they know exactly who they're dealing with. They said, what have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? In fact, look at their follow-up question. Have you come here for what purpose? To torment us before what? The time. Is it possible that the demons are students of Bible prophecy? We don't even have to speculate. Scripture tells us specifically the demons believe and tremble. I don't know why this is it's so interesting to me, but it's almost as though they like they take Jesus at his word, they know who he is, they trust that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. And it's almost like they're depending on the word of God, saying, whoa, 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 your word says it's not time yet. We know there's a time coming, but it's not now. Are you here to get an early start? <laughs> Have you come here to torment us before the time? They know there's a time coming. They know what their end will be. And they know who's going to do it. It's Jesus himself. It's also interesting they want to get Jesus off into a theological debate to distract him from his business there in Gergesa. It's very Nicodemus-like. What's interesting, let's talk about this. And Jesus like, you need to be born again. I'm not here to discuss Bible prophecy, even though you're right, and you will. Jesus has come here for a mission. Verse 30. Now a good way off from them, there was a herd of many swine feeding. It's interesting how they, like, so there's this confrontation, this direct face-to-face -face interaction between demons and Jesus himself. And there's like, anyway, they're also a bunch of pigs. It's interestingly written. You know, it's dropping something. And I bet these pigs are going to be pretty important here in just a second. 
And it, it says in Matthew's account, a good way off from him, there were a swine, a, a herd of many swine, but it doesn't tell us how many. But leave your finger there in Matthew chapter 8, and let's go back over to the, to the right to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5. And if you go to verse 13 in Mark's account, he gives some different detail. Again, complementing the story so we can really fill it out. And if you go to verse 11, actually, it says, Now a large herd of swine was feeding near their mountain. So Matthew says many, Mark says large. But then, in 13, the incidental detail is added. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine, parentheses, there were about, how many? 2,000. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 8, and let's think about 2,000 pigs. Probably not a thing you often do, but, you know, let your mind run for just a minute. About 2,000 pigs. I haven't been around many pigs, but the ones I have, though they be few in number, are, they make quite a scene and a presence just in their, you know, their presentation. They, they don't necessarily go unnoticed. Like, you, you walk through a pig's, oh, I'm, I'm, among, I'm amongst the pigs. There is a smell that goes with pigs. There is a, a level of noisiness and, you know, and none of it is, like, refreshing. <laughs> no one's having a hard day. It's like, you know what? I need the calm, peace, and serenity of the sty. Let's, and, and, and that's with just, like, a handful. Now, if you add that multiplied to dozens or hundreds, or in this case, literal thousands of pigs. They don't need to be demon-infused to be noticed to start with. But as we go to Matthew chapter 8, back to verse 30, now a good way off from them, there, were two, there was a herd of many swine feeding, so, verse 31, the demons begged him. Now let's take a quick time out. You're going to see in this storyline, there are going to be three beggings of Jesus. Three times Jesus is begged something in this story. The first one is by the demons themselves. Now they already know what's coming. Big picture, end time coming. They're going to be destroyed. Jesus is going to win. But here they're like, wait, wait, wait. But that's for then. It's not time for us to leave yet. So if you do decide to start your work and cast this out, let us proffer a deal. Let us strike a compromise. So they propose to Jesus a compromise. Verse 31. So the demons begged him saying, if you cast us out. Come on, that's going to be when. But if you cast us out, permit us. Please, in your mercy, please allow us to go away into the herd of swine. We'll leave these two men. We'll trade you these two men for those 2,000 pigs. Let's have a swap. And you would think that Jesus would say, I do not negotiate with demons. I'm in no need of a plan B. I don't have to have a compromise. I'm going to win decisively, and it's going to be to God's glory. He could have just laid down the lumber and been done with it, right? 
But interestingly enough, the demons beg him, and in verse 32, he said to them, Go. It's as though he says, Okay. Sounds like a good deal. I'll take these two men, you take those 2,000 pigs, we'll swap. Go ahead. So, verse 32 continues, when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine. Now again, we've already imagined non-demon-possessed swine. Now you add to that clutter, clamor, and scent Two, I mean, I don't know how many demons, but enough to fill up 2,000 pigs. And suddenly, the whole herd of swine ran violently. I've seen pigs kind of trot a little bit for a break, but a violent running pig? What would a violent run look like? I mean, it had to be spasmodic and chaotic and just and 2,000 of them, right? And I imagine they weren't quiet about it. You can imagine the oinks and the squeals and the, you know, 8,000 little hooves. And suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the, the steep place into the sea. So they run down, so the running and the noise and the clamor and the like a wave of stink just rolling down the mountain and they come to a precipice and of course they have no sense they don't even have their native pig sense they are demon infused and they're just headed off the cliff and just just the squealing and the flapping and the and just 2,000 pigs splashing into the sea meaning a rather grotesque end And perished, says, in the water. Verse 33, then those who kept them fled, you think? <laughs> you know, they weren't down there by the demon-possessed men exactly. I don't know, but they saw some interaction, and then they saw, maybe they, I like to imagine them watching this, like, he's talking to the, to the demon. Oh, this is going to be interesting. The demons are going to get some... Some fresh, oh, but this guy, they're, they're shaking hands. They're making a deal. They're pointing to the pigs. And all of a sudden, shh, maybe Jesus does a whole, shh. And all of a sudden, the pigs, I'm not going to act it out. But you know, just get crazy and just run off. And the pig herders are just watching the whole thing. And I'm sure they're not going to be like, wait, pig, stop. You know, they just, they're gone. So verse 33, then those who kept them fled and they went away into the city, and now notice how this is written, and told what? Everything. Comma. Including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. For these pig herders, what was their everything? The pigs. That was the main emphasis of their testimony. And verse 34 sounds so beautiful if you're to take it out of context and read it for a scripture reading, at least the first verse there, I mean, first part. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. Amen. 
And when they saw him, they begged him, second begging, to do what? To depart from them. The whole town, united together, went to meet Jesus for the purpose of begging him to go away. As a result of the testimony of those pig herders, the whole village came to Jesus to beg him to leave. Leave your finger there in Matthew chapter 8 still. That's our home base. But go to, this time, John chapter 4. Jesus had another encounter on another occasion with someone who ran to tell the whole town what had just happened. John chapter 4 Verse 28, this is the woman at the well. The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Now notice what her question is. Could this be what? The Christ. She goes to tell the whole town her personal testimony, but for her the big deal is you've got to meet Jesus. I think he could be the Christ. Verse 30, then they went out of the city and came to him. Skip down to verse 39. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. Now, you know the story of the woman at the well. We don't have to review it now, but could she have gone back to the city and told a different testimony? I met this man. He got all in my business started talking about things that were honestly outside of his lane and it was offensive. Come help me get rid... But she doesn't. Because to her the big deal is, I think I found the Messiah. Come, you've got to see him too. Hmm. Notice in verse 40, still in John chapter 4, so when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to do what? To stay with them. And what did he do? And he stayed for two days. One encounter, she runs off, gives the testimony, and everyone begs him to stay, and he does. And it's not like one was a good encounter and one was a bad encounter. But the power of that personal testimony changed how other people viewed Jesus. Back in our story of Matthew chapter 8, the observers of the miracle put the wrong spin on it. They told the story the wrong way. Instead of Guys, you remember those two demoniacs that have been bugging the whole place? They've been awful? They, somebody just freed those men. You've got to come see them. Their report focused on, somebody came and killed all our pigs. Sister White puts it this way, Desire of Ages 338, but the people who beheld this wonderful scene did not rejoice. The loss of the swine seemed to them of greater moment than the deliverance of these captives of Satan. They were more upset 
by what an encounter with Jesus took away than the redemption of souls that it provided. You know, Satan can make you think that the cost of following Christ is too high. People who look on the outside of Christianity might feel the converting, convicting power on their, of the Holy Spirit on their heart, but they might look at, and Satan in that time of, you know, deliberation, that time of conviction will lead them to think of all that it's going to cost them to follow Jesus. I'm going to lose my pigs. Or if you don't have 2,000 pigs, you've got something else. It's like, yeah, I know it would probably be good, to, but I can't smoke anymore, I can't drink, I can't swear, uh, fornicate, lie. I mean, the list can go on and on of all the stuff I used to do, but I can't do. I might lose my job, my family, or even my life. Instead of focusing on the immeasurable gain, Satan wants you to focus on the comparatively minuscule or even wholly fictitious loss that may result from a surrender to Christ. Jesus says in John 10.10, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and they may have it how? Friends, life is better with Jesus. That should be the testimony of every Christian. I had an encounter with Jesus and it was great. You need one too. I love this. Steps to Christ, page 46. God does not require us to give up anything that it is in our, for our best interest to retain. In all that he does, he has the well-being of his children in view. Would that all who have not chosen Christ might realize that he has something vastly better to offer them than they are seeking for themselves. Man is doing the greatest injury and injustice to his own soul when he thinks and acts contrary to the will of God. No real joy can be found in the path forbidden by him who knows what is best and who plans for the good of his creatures. It is his purpose to impart peace and rest to all who come to him for the bread of life. He requires us to perform only those duties that will lead our steps to heights of bliss to which the disobedient can never attain. The true joyous life of the soul is to have Christ formed within the hope of glory. Jesus goes around offering eternity and Satan wants people hung up on losing pigs. So back to our story. Matthew chapter 8. Verse 34. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. So we dip our toe into Matthew chapter 9 for just this first verse. So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. He didn't stay. Matthew 5, chapter 5, 6, and 7, he articulates the principles of the kingdom of God. He comes down that mountain with a head of steam and with momentum, with the wind at his back, and Satan just falling over left and right, healing, casting out. And when Satan ratchets it up, Christ muscles up in his heart and he pushes back and he wins. 
He beats out the sea. He beats out the demon-possessed men. But when you get to the end of Matthew chapter 8, after all those successes, it looks like, if all we had was Matthew 8, by the way, it looks like, it's awkward to say this phrase from a pulpit on Sabbath morning, but it looks like Satan won. This Satan, fine, gave up two demon-possessed men, but guarded the whole city. And that Jesus' plans, his objectives were thwarted. He were out-schemed by the devil. That the pig trick worked. The town would not receive Jesus, and he was cast out, just like he had cast out the demons. So I praise the Lord that we don't just have Matthew's account, we also have Mark's account. And that scripture is complementary and gives us the full picture. If you go to Mark, chapter 5, we see the rest of the story. We'll pick it up in verse 17. We'll pass the baton from Matthew to Mark. Mark chapter 5, verse 17. Then they begin to plead with him to depart from their region. Verse 18. And when he got into a boat, into the boat, by the way, that's the second begging. Did you catch it? First the demons beg him to go into the pigs, and he says, okay, go. The townsfolk then come and beg him to go away. And what does he do? According to both Matthew and Mark, he honors their request, he steps into a boat, and he takes off. Apparently, Christ is in a whatever you ask of me, I'll give you kind of mood, even if it's demons. The demons ask, he says yes. The unconverted townsfolk come, have your will. But here comes the third begging. Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, uh, Mark chapter 5, I'm sorry, verse 18. And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. You can imagine the scene. This man has just met Jesus. He's been freed of who knows how many years of torment. And now... The townsfolk where he's been living all rush out to push this Jesus away. And you're watching Jesus climb in the boat and say, as you will. And he gets in the boat and he's leaving. And the, the poor former demoniac. This is all on the same day, by the way. It's not like he spent a month at a training school with Jesus. He's had an afternoon with him. I don't know how long it takes to go, you know, I don't know how long it takes for pigs to die, and I don't know how long it takes for them to run, and I don't know how long it takes the word to get out and for the town to go. But it's all in the afternoon, right? They're all, it's all in this little time period. And so he's had his first encounter with Jesus. That's it. And now they're all asking him to leave, and he's begging him, please, don't make me stay here with them. I want to go with you. And we got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. And notice that, I just want to be near you, I just want to be with you, I just want to go wherever it is you go, I just... We just got started, you're not going to separate us now, and leave me with them. 
Verse 19, however, Jesus did not permit him. The one converted character in the whole story. And Jesus denies his request. Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. They've only heard one story. They need to hear a better story. Go home to your friends and just start talking. And notice he didn't say host an evangelistic campaign, which, by the way, I'm a big fan of evangelistic campaigns. He just said, just start talking to your friends. Just go do that. And how he's had compassion on you. And so verse 20, and he departed. By the way, that's the true sign of conversion is obedience. Is this what they want to do? Nope, it's not their inclination, but is what Jesus said to do. Okay. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him. And look at these next closing words. And all, what? Marveled. There are probably lots and lots and lots of lessons and applications we can get from this story, but I want to highlight two for us today. Why Jesus had the demoniacs stay home, and I should be clear, the former demoniacs. Now, by the way, back to that contradiction, apparent contradiction between Mark and Matthew, I wonder if it's the case that Mark talks about one because only one begged to stay with Jesus. I don't know. We know of other times where Jesus has healed people and not everyone has been appreciative. Remember the ten lepers? You could tell that story. There was this one leper? No, there were ten. Well, yes, but only one came. You see what I'm saying? But in Mark's account, he focuses on that one man who begged Jesus, please let me go with you. So I believe there are two reasons why Jesus had the demoniac stay home and there are lessons that we can apply in our lives today. First of all, it's obvious from the context we've just read that Jesus came down that mountain with the intention of getting to Decapolis. He had an objective in mind and apparently he's been hindered, thwarted, stopped from going. But I praise the Lord that Jesus isn't a quitter. Whole nother sermon, but give me just a second. You should look up in the commentary, in the Sister White's, uh, in, in the LNG White app or CD-ROM if they still exist or whatever it online, however you get them. Or, or you know, read a book. <laughs> <laughs> and she talks about how in many of our missionary endeavors, we fail because we lack, and this is her word, push. And oftentimes we talk about the character, in fact, if I were to ask right now, I'm poisoning the well by saying what you're going to say, but I would imagine if I open the floor to a conversation about what are the character traits of Christ that we must have in our life, it would all be sweetness, humility, soft-spokenness, calmness, gentleness, meekness, mildness. Nobody's going to say strength, 
push, you know, tenacity. Look up in the little CD-ROMs on, quote, the active virtues. Christ was not a pushover. He was not a floor mat for Satan. And he was going to accomplish his ends however he had to do it. Sure, he's going to get in the boat. But he's going to win that war. And so first of all, as an unentered field, Jesus needed frontline workers into capitalists. I had a mission. I'm still going to win that town. Desire of Ages, page 340. The two restored demoniacs were the first missionaries whom Christ sent to preach the gospel in the region of Decapolis. She goes on to say, Though the people of Gergesa had not received Jesus, he did not leave them to the darkness they had chosen. By the way, can you say amen that we serve a Jesus who does not leave us to the darkness we have chosen? Friends, you might have cast Jesus out of your heart, but he's not, well, I guess that was it. That was my one shot. He's going to come back, and he's going to come, he's going to go through a window. He's going to try the back door. He will not leave you alone until in the final day of judgment, he can say, I did everything I could. Jesus has push, and we need it too. He did not leave them to the darkness they had chosen. When they bade him depart from them, they had not heard his words. They'd only heard about Jesus. They'd never actually heard Jesus. They were ignorant of that which they were rejecting. Therefore, he again sent them light, and by those whom they would not refuse to listen. Now, I think this is fascinating. You can almost, as we pan out, picture this strategic back and forth. Think of it like a chess match being played out between Christ and Satan in this whole story, right? Jesus has a mission. I'm coming to win Decapolis. Satan says, okay, well, I'll send out two demoniacs to block your way. Mm-hmm. To which Jesus said, okay, well, I'll cast out their demons. To which Satan counters, fine, but I'll use their demons to drive their precious pigs into the sea. Ha ha. To which Jesus said, that's no problem, because all publicity is good publicity. Call me names all you want, but just keep saying my name. I'll leave the former demoniacs here as living examples of my power, and through your publicity stunt and their personal testimony, I'll win more souls than I could have otherwise. You just helped the cause. Thank you for your offering. Now, it sounds like I'm taking a little license with that story, but I'm not. Desire of Ages 340 continues. In causing the destruction of the swine, it was Satan's purpose to turn the people away from the Savior and prevent the preaching of the gospel in that region. But this very occurrence roused the whole country as nothing else could have done and directed attention to Christ. We don't talk about this much either. But Jesus is brilliant. He's not just sweet. He's not just kind. He's not just self-sacrificing. He's strong and smart too. Think about this. Early on in his ministry, he came to clean out the temple, did he not? And when confronted about this, after all the leaders had, you know, scattered away and they got the nerve to come back and test him about it, 
Jesus made this interesting statement. He said, destroy this temple, and what? I'll build it again. How long? In three days. They say, what? It took our forefathers years. What are you going to do? And you know what Jesus didn't do? Explain himself. He walked away purposefully muddying their thoughts. He said, all right, guys, let's go. And that was early in his ministry. For the next three years, people talked and talked and talked about how Jesus made this crazy thing. Destroy the temple, I'll build it in three days. When you get to the end of Jesus' story, by the way, he doesn't have an end of a story, <laughs> but the end of the gospel account of his earthly mission, at his trial and crucifixion, what was the one charge they were finally able to get stick against Jesus? This man said he'd destroy the temple and build it again in three days. When he was hanging on the cross, people shouted that as a taunt. And Jesus didn't say a word. But after three days, when he arose, as the saying is, the penny dropped, and they're like, oh, he was talking about He planned that years in advance just so the word would get out. Jesus knows what he's doing in your life. He sees the end from the beginning. Just because you don't and I don't doesn't mean he doesn't. And he overrules Satan for good. By the way, the scripture doesn't say that all things are good for those who believe in Jesus. It says all things work together for good. It might take some time, it might take some moves, it might take some working things out, but all things work together for good. Stick with Jesus and he's going to win. Again, this very occurrence roused the whole country as nothing else could have done and directed attention to Christ. Though the Savior himself departed, the men whom he healed remained as witnesses to his power. Those who had been mediums of the prince of darkness became channels of light, messengers of the Son of God. Men marveled as they listened to the wondrous news. A door was opened to the gospel throughout that region. And when Jesus returned to Decapolis, the people flocked about him. And for three days, not merely the inhabitants of one town, but thousands from all the surrounding region heard the message of salvation. Even the power of demons is under the control of our Savior, and the working of evil is overruled for good. Let's soak in this for a second, too. Those folks rejected Jesus. But they were willing to listen to these unlearned former demoniacs. Did you know there are people in your life who will not listen to a pastor or an evangelist, but they will listen to you? They may not visit your church, and they may not find it online, they may not, but through your influence in their lives, they can see Jesus in more direct way than even the professional evangelist, the minister, the elder, whatever. There's a reason, and you see it in the, Jesus' own ministry. The model of heaven is that every member is a missionary for Jesus. You have a voice that only some will hear. So reason number one, he refused the begging of the former demoniac because he needed missionaries. He was going to get that work done. That's reason number one. 
But reason number two is the most counterintuitive and baffling of all. And that is that staying away from Jesus at this point in their religious experience was better for them than if he had been, they had been permitted to stay with him. Now I know that seems odd. But these men serve as an example that it is not deep theological theory but rather deep personal experience that is most needed in our Christian life and witness. Learning less and sharing more would be of greater benefit than had they been permitted to learn more but required to share less. I know, there was a lot there. We're going to say that one again. Let's slow it down. But this is direct impact in our life. Now, let me be clear. We should always be learning more. Study the Word. Listen to good sermons. Be engaged in a local Sabbath school class. Build up your knowledge of the Word of God. Absolutely. But in this instance, they had the opportunity to sit at the feet of Him who is the Word, and He sent them away. And the reason is simple. Learning less and sharing more would be of greater benefit than had they been permitted to learn more but required to share less. I love this Seventh-day Adventist movement and I praise the Lord for the deep, powerful, life-changing truth of His Word that we've been entrusted with. But let me tell you, friends, one of the danger in the Seventh-day Adventist movement today is to stop moving. We just receive, amen, and receive, amen, and receive, and learning more and more and more, and all the while sharing less and less and less. Have no problem with the learning more, but note for a moment, let it make a dent in the sharing part of our faith. The demons, by the way, who had possessed these men knew more about the Bible. But by accepting Christ by faith and experiencing true freedom, these men knew more about the God of the Bible. So far, all those were my words. Let's go to inspiration. Desire of Ages 339 and 40 explains. In doing this work, that is the witnessing to their friends, their neighbors, and their communities in that town of Decapolis, in doing this work, they could receive a greater blessing than if, merely for benefit to themselves, they had remained in his presence. And you might think, oh, newly converted, new members of the church, you know what they need? They need to sit here for a while. They need to soak it in. They really need to sit at the feet of Jesus. You can keep Jesus with you, but be on the move and go share your faith. Jesus knew that he's, all right, you're converted. We've spent some time together. You may not know all that you could know, but you know enough. Go start sharing. I'll read it again. In doing this work, they could receive a greater blessing than if, merely for benefit to themselves, they remained in his presence. It is in working to spread the good news of salvation that we are brought near to the Savior. Nearness to Christ is always in service for Christ. 
She goes on, For a few moments only, these men had been privileged to hear the teachings of Christ. Not one sermon from his lips had ever fallen upon their ears. They could not instruct the people as the disciples who had been daily with Christ were able to do. Like if he wanted to send a trained Bible worker, send Peter, he likes to talk. And keep the demoniac, right? The former, do I have to be the former demoniac? <laughs> but no, he sends out the demoniac. Why? Because, number one, it's in Christ's best friends. They're going to listen to them more than they listen to Jesus or his disciples. So it's good for the mission, and it's good for the member. It's going to build you into a soul winner better than just sitting around listening even to Jesus himself. Again, they could not instruct the people as the disciples who had been daily with Christ were able to do, but they bore in their own persons the evidence that Jesus was the Messiah. They could tell what they knew, what they themselves had seen and heard and felt of the power of Christ. This is what everyone can do whose heart has been touched by the grace of God. As witnesses for Christ, we are to tell what we know, what we ourselves have seen and heard and felt. If we have been following Jesus step by step, we shall have something right to the point to tell concerning the way in which he has led us. We can tell how we have tested his promise and found the promise true. We can bear witness to what we have known of the grace of Christ. This is the witness for which our Lord calls and for want of which the world is perishing. Yes, I praise the Lord for the great truths we have in this movement. But if it's just kept inside the walls of this house or in the confines of our own heart, it is not doing the work God intended it to do. When Jesus fed the 5,000, he made sure there was leftovers. And if you go to the Desire of Ages, what was it for? To take home and give to everybody else in the house too. So as we end today, there are two lessons I hope we take away. Lesson number one, Jesus is brilliant and we can trust him to counteract and overrule any scheme of Satan. If you're going through a challenging time or facing what appear to be insurmountable obstacles to your faith, remember that Christ took men who were demoniacs in the morning and made them missionaries by the afternoon. He can work in your circumstance too. And lesson number two, it's never too early to go to work for Jesus. Now we often talk, it's never too late. It's never too late. You've been here a long time, and friends, that's true. It's never too late, but it's also never too early. The right time to work to Jesus is now. Today. It's never too early to go to work for Jesus. You may not know exactly what to say or how to say it. By the way, we do a lot of, in, in our conference office, we do, uh, Pastor Howard is the director of the Emanuel Institute, we do a lot of lay member training for soul winning work and for uh, uh, Bible giving and how to be an effective evangelist personal ministry wise. And when you ask people why they don't go out and give Bible studies more, so many times they'll say like, they'll start listing off their fears. Uh, I'm afraid of rejection. I'm afraid of what people, by the way, I think more people are afraid of people saying yes to a Bible study than saying no. We're braced for a no. We knock on a door. Would you like to study the Bible? No. Oh, I've been wounded. You're also off the hook. You just get to go home. But what happens if they say yes? Like, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> and now I've got to commit to this. And now I've got to get to know you. And now I've got to bone up on my life. Oh. But 
but you may not know exactly what to say or how to say it. And odds are, when you share your faith, when you start to witness, when you offer Bible studies, when you start talking spiritual things and start witnessing for Jesus, you're not going to do it very well at first. I'm guessing when those demoniacs, former demoniacs, I've got to retitle the sermon. They're not the demoniacs anymore. They're the former demoniacs. When they went home, I'm guessing they didn't have a nice PowerPoint glossy presentation laid out. First, I'm guessing people were like, whoa! And he's like, hey, calm down, calm down. I'm, I'm sane. I'm sane. Let's just start with the basics. Let me just tell you some things about myself. And they're not used to talking to people, at least in a nice way. Like, didn't you used to be? Yeah, that's the thing. I used to be crazy. It's like, yeah, I remember the cutting. Yeah, we don't have to go back. I, I know, it was crazy. But, and they just start t- telling. And you get better at stuff by doing stuff. Let me put it this way. When it comes to soul winning work, personal evangelism, not being good at something is not evidence you need to do it less. It's evidence you need to do it more. Nowhere in the Bible, by the way, does it say that witnessing is a spiritual gift. It's standard equipment for every Christian. And if you're not good at it, imagine the scenario. Let's say that you're in a, diff, a really terrible car accident, your leg compound fractures, all kind of stuff. I don't even like to think about it. But you're in this apparatus in the hospital and you're there for weeks and they've done amazing surgeries and, and uh, therapies to help you out. And they finally take the cast off. Will your leg that has been immobile look different than the one that's been out? Yes. You'll have a different color, a different size, a different texture, maybe even a different smell. But now you're free, so you hop up from the bed and you run down. What's going to happen? Right? Now, no one in the medical profession is going to come along and look at that circumstance and say, oh, it's clear you have not been given the gift of mobility. No. You can. You're just not good at it yet. So you're going to start with little things. Just do some stretching, some little weight stuff, and then a little bit, a few steps at a time, and you get better at it. You may not know exactly what to say or how to say it, but make a covenant with God that you will be a missionary for him in your own Decapolis, wherever that is. It might be a workplace, it might be a school place, it might be in the community somewhere, it might be amongst your family, your non-adverse I don't know what your circumstance is, I don't know where your Girgesa is. But Jesus has you somewhere and he expects you to be a witness. As we start the new year, I would challenge you to keep these two things in mind and make a commitment to Jesus. Number one, I'm going to trust that God is smarter than me and I'm going to stick by faith with him no matter what. Commitment number one. Commitment number two, not only am I going to stay with Jesus, but I'm going to witness for Jesus, and I'm going to do my best by God's grace to lead a soul to Jesus this year. And I might not be good at it, but I'm going to keep trying. I might not see the end from the beginning, and it might be an apparent failure, but I'm going to keep pushing because that's what Jesus did for me, and I'm going to do that for somebody else. How many here today want to make those two simple commitments? Number one, let's do one at a time. I'm going to trust Jesus is smarter than me and he's going to work things out and I'm going to stick with him no matter what. Commitment number one. Good. Number two. By God's grace, I am going to get better by practice 
at witnessing for Jesus. And if he so blesses me, I'm going to win a soul for Jesus this year. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this new year. We thank you for the, for the encounter with Jesus that you offer to each one of us individually. Lord, as we go forward from this place today, help us to trust you, that you see the end from the beginning. We can put our faith in you and we can follow wherever you lead us. And secondly, Lord, help us not be content with our own relationship with you, but by your grace, help us to be effective witnesses for you in our own Decapolis of home. Wherever it may be, Lord, even if we're not good at it yet, work through us for your grace, for the upbuilding of your kingdom, so that when Jesus comes, not one will be missing, is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.